have both an Old Testament and New Testament reading before our sermon this morning, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is where we will begin, and then we'll read Revelation 5. Psalm 24, this is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Psalm 24 of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your gate, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory. The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen. Our New Testament reading, Revelation chapter 5. If you would. Turn then to the last book in our scriptures, Revelation 5. Here the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, is given the vision of the heavenly throne room and sees the risen and exalted Christ in this chapter, Revelation 5. Once again, give your attention to the reading of God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, 
and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. A little known fact about most people's or many people's favorite Christmas hymn. It's actually not my favorite Christmas carol. Hark the Herald is my favorite Christmas carol. And I think that that may be the, the best hymn ever written. So excuse me while I generally plan for us to sing that three or four times every Christmas season. But many people, their favorite Christmas carol is Joy to the World. We sang it at the beginning of the service this morning. A little known fact about that song is that Isaac Watts, the author, wrote that actually primarily referring to the second coming of Christ and not the first. And we sing it at Christmas. It's become synonymous with the Christmas season and very fitting to do so. Uh, Certainly as those who look to Christ in faith and who see him as our, our risen king and our reigning king, we can look back to his birth, the advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and, and we can see that there's a new world that dawns when Jesus Christ is born. In the face of that little child, there is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But in the first advent of Christ, the earth did not receive her king. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with with grief. Not every heart made room for him. Not every heart prepared him room. His blessings would flow, but the curse remained active in our world. It's our great hope that one day no more will sins and sorrows grow. No more will thorns infest the ground, for he will come to make blessing flow far as the curse is found. You see, most of the lines in the the, the carol are more easily attributed to the second coming of Christ and not the first. And yet, uh, we we do confess that Jesus Christ is is reigning now, and he is reigning gloriously now. And that really is is where the, the Christmas season, the Christmas celebration season, ought to lead someone who trusts in Christ, who looks to him. It, it ought to lead us to this realization of his reign and his rule that is, is so amazing when you think about it in the face of his humiliation, his incarnation, the birth of the God-man, the birth of the God-man in a cave, in a stable, laid in a manger. In order to see this, we need to square his glorious reign with his humble coming. And that's what we seek to do today. He reigns. He reigns. But does he reign in your heart, brother and sister? Does he reign in your life? So we'll retrace that story a bit as we think about the exaltation 
the ascension, the reigning of Christ, his reception into heaven. We've been thinking about uh, different passages from Handel's Messiah this Christmas season, and, and it ends with this great chorus, worthy is the Lamb. That's really where Christmas is leading us, the kingship of Christ, the, the reign of Christ. So first, he comes in meekness. He comes in humility. And then secondly, he reigns in glory. He comes in meekness, he comes in humility. And then secondly, he reigns in glory. The humility of Jesus. Uh, Theologians actually speak of the humiliation of Jesus. It was wonderful to think about that as we went through Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself. How did he humble himself? The Son of God, eternal God, very God of very God. He takes on himself a human nature. And he appears on the earth as a man, a true man. One who was created to serve the living God. See, the, the, the creator takes on this human form. The theologians call that a, a humbling, a humiliation even of Jesus Christ. That uh, he is the one to whom all glory and praise and honor is due. These wonderful pictures that give comfort to our hearts. The picture of a, of a lamb. The picture of the God-man being a little child. A, a beautiful newborn babe. There's so many things about that that bring us comfort. But William Blake captures how uh, this is, is a stunning reality, that eternal God becomes one who is identified as a lamb. And so he writes this poem, which is sort of addressed to a sheep, to a lamb. He says this, William Blake, little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee, little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child, thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. A child, a lamb, that God himself would take these Upon himself, the God, the Son, the eternal God, it's a stunning truth, isn't it? A stunning truth. The humility of Jesus Christ. The humiliation of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You think of when he rides into Jerusalem and even there we see his humility. Matthew 21, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The shepherds who received the, the announcement from the angels would have had just a, a stunning number of things going through their minds as uh, they're going to, to see this child. Some of the symbolism is, is really just too good to pass up. We read that in the same country, in the same region, there were these shepherds. So they were around Bethlehem. And it's very likely that raising sheep around Bethlehem means that at least some of the sheep that you would raise would one day be used in the temple for altar sacrifices. Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem. It's very likely that these shepherds, at least some of their flock, would make their way to the temple one day to be slaughtered for the sin sacrifices of the temple. And one of the requirements, of course, for sheep who were used in the temple and on the altar was that they were spotless. That picture of a a spotless lamb, perfect blood to cover sin. So when a 
a female sheep was ready to give birth, often what these shepherds would do is they would take the mother sheep into a cave to create some protection and some cover. They would deliver a baby lamb, and they would immediately inspect it all around to see if there were any blemishes, any imperfections. And if it were a spotless lamb that they would find, what they would do is they would immediately wrap it in swaddling clothes because baby lambs would thrash around and could injure themselves and thereby create a blemish, create an imperfection, no longer able to be used for the altar. And so birth in a cave wrapped in swaddling clothes. Imagine then how we are to think about this passage, a very famous passage. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Think about all that we've just said. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The shepherds, whatever understanding or to whatever extent they would have understood it is somewhat of a mystery to us, but they probably would have thought a baby lying in a manger, birth in a cave, wrapped in swaddling clothes, that's what we do to a spotless lamb so that it might be used for uh, in the temple, on the altar. And so all of these things flying through their minds, we read in the Gospel of Luke that they went and they, they were wondering about these things. It stunned them. They didn't, trying to create and connect the dots, they didn't really know exactly what was going on, but that's the symbolism of what's going on. This is the Lamb of God. But this is eternal God. This is very God becoming a Lamb. One who would one day be that spotless lamb that would give the final sacrifice. That would be the final payment for our sin. This is the God-man. Kings of the earth generally take their thrones by force. But Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not come with, with swords and, and with an army to fight on the earth. It's, it tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, his servants would be fighting. And yet, we see that, that in his humility, his humiliation, his coming in, in meekness is for a specific reason. Because he came not to uh, take to himself a palace, but he came in utter obedience to the law of God. Just as Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Someone who is faultless, someone who is blameless, with clean hands and a pure heart. Revelation chapter 5, what does it say? That this lamb purchased people for God. He purchased people unto himself that they would be purified. This is a, a kingdom unlike any other because he conquers people to himself and he cleanses them to make them a kingdom of priests who would serve the living God. He lived for others in utter obedience to the law of God. What does the law of God say? Human beings are to love God and love neighbor. The highest calling of a human being created by God is to live not for yourself, but for others. And Jesus Christ 
came showing that perfectly. Perfectly loving God. Perfectly loving others. That was his humility. But he also reigns gloriously, doesn't he? He reigns gloriously. You see, his meekness is not weakness. Though he comes as a humble king, he reigns in the highest of heaven. It takes nothing away from his glory. It takes nothing away from his reign. In fact, Jesus Christ, in the scriptures we read that his reign is above all others. He goes to the lowest depths, bearing sin, so that he may ascend to the highest heights. Puritan John Flavel says this regarding the enthronement, the reign of Christ. Oh, what a change this is. Here he sweated, but there he sits. Here he groaned, but there he triumphs. Here he lay upon the ground. There he sits on the throne of glory. Psalm 24 is really that recounting, or really as it was written, a prophecy of the enthronement of Christ. Lift up your heads, O you gates, that the King of glory may come in. It's that picture of of Jesus Christ at the end of his life, risen, ascending into heaven. And what does heaven do? Heaven receives her king. John Owen says that save for the consummation of all things, there has never been a moment so glorious as the risen king ascending into heaven and being received. And the father joyfully receiving his son who has come back, who went into a far country But yet, unlike the prodigal son, he was perfectly obedient. And he comes back to his father and is received in glory. And angels were singing and praising. And Revelation 5 gives us that picture. And circled around the throne of the Lamb. He reigns in glory. He reigns in glory and he reigns in power. Psalm 2, a prophecy about the reign of the son. And it says there, the Father will give to him the nations as his inheritance. The ends of the earth is your possession. And then it says this in verse 9 of Psalm 2, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He does not lack power. Kiss the Son, it says, lest he be angry And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's really a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The humble king is a gracious king. He welcomes those who take refuge in him. But he is not in want of any power. He is not of want of any authority. As he ascends at the end of his earthly life, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the gospel is that you see this king who humbled himself for you, and that ought to stun you. That ought to to hit you like a ton of bricks every time you realize that the God-man who came to this earth for me. The gospel is that you seek refuge in him, and he is glad to take unto himself a nation of people from every tribe and tongue, every corner of the earth, to make them a kingdom of priests But if you do not bow in adoration to this king, you will one day bow in submission to this king. You bow in adoration now and see his glorious reign as the gospel is proclaimed that this king of kings, Jesus Christ, who was born and laid in a manger, is now reigning. 
and is now reigning at the right hand of the Father. And we bow in adoration now because there will come a day when all those who stood against him will be dashed to pieces, as Psalm 2 says. You bow in adoration now, for one day all will bow in submission. You see, his meekness is not weakness. Rather, Jesus Christ reigns over all in a reign that goes far beyond anything we could imagine. Oftentimes, the pictures of Christmas make people think that they can keep Jesus right wherever makes them comfortable in their life. Right? The, the, the manger, the cave, the, the stable. These, again, these pictures, these symbols, they, they bring people great comfort. But if, if you do not connect to the larger story of Jesus' life and see that that was a child that was born to suffer, and to suffer for you and for me and for our sin. And we are called to see the place to which he ascends. The rule and the reign to which he goes. And if we do not recognize that. Uh, then we put ourselves in great danger. So don't let Christmas be something that allows you to keep Jesus wherever is comfortable for you. He's on the throne. Whether we admit it and see it or not. The kingdom of God then becomes a kingdom where all of those who look to Jesus Christ in faith and those who recognize his lordship and his kingship gladly and willingly bring themselves under his government. That's what makes the kingdom of God different than any other. Now, there are many times great kings who can rally a lot of loyalty to themselves and people often uh, even delight in giving themselves to, to certain rulers. But nothing is like the kingdom of God. For everyone who looks to Jesus Christ in faith, everyone upon whom the Spirit of God is pleased to act, that these are the ones whose lives, whose hearts are transformed, that they give this allegiance, this utter and ultimate allegiance to their King Jesus. Psalm 110 is a psalm that talks about the reign and the rule, the enthronement of Christ. And verse 3 says this, Your people willingly follow you when you go into battle. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's his people, whose greatest delight is to serve him and love him, to live for him as we look to the fact that he did not live for himself, but he lived on this earth for us. To be a Christian means to be subdued under the reign of Christ, to, to have him rule in your heart. Now that can exist in varying degrees, but the reason we're thinking about this this morning, brothers and sisters, is that we can bring ourselves once again to the realization of the importance of living fully and always under the reign of Jesus Christ, uh, of those who who are filled with this faith in the gospel that uh, we remind ourselves that it ought to be our greatest satisfaction to live under his reign, to have his name upon us. You see, Psalm 24 has that great vision of heaven receiving her king. And Revelation 5 has that great vision of the worship which is due Christ's name. He reigns over all things and he reigns in heaven. But does he reign in your heart? Does he reign in you? What happens when we come to Christ in this way? We hand him the keys to all the rooms of our soul. Have you done that? Do you, do you, have you given the keys to all the rooms in your soul? 
to Christ, the reigning king. If he reigns over all, how could we not want him to reign in our lowly hearts? So that's where it brings us. He comes in meekness. He comes in humility. He reigns in glory. Does he reign in you? Does he reign in you? Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now there will come a day when the realities of the kingdom of God will not be able to be denied by anyone. There will come a day in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness and peace and love and joy are perfectly existing, where fully and finally heaven and earth have been brought back together. But Jesus, in this answer here, what what he's saying is that uh, until all things are consummated, there's elements of mystery to the kingdom of God, and it dwells in the midst of us. It's like leaven in a loaf of bread that works itself through. And at certain times it is more seen or less seen, but it's in our midst. And one of the ways in which it is in our midst, I don't think this is the only way, but one of the ways in which it is in our midst is that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who understand the nature of his reign, make it their great joy to walk through this earth under his government, under his rule. Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about God's people being marked by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if he reigns in you, here are some characteristics and even some blessings to keep in mind. Think about all of these things and uh, think about the, the state of your own life and to what extent you may need to bring yourself once again under his reign and rule. Those who trust in Christ's reign, those who are part of his kingdom first, have faith and trust in the gospel of grace. Faith and trust in the gospel of grace. You believe God's word. You believe what Jesus Christ himself said, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's where our relationship with our God begins. We are counted as righteous, as forgiven, as children of God, as we look to Jesus Christ, and that can never be taken away for those who are granted true faith. So faith in the gospel of grace. Secondly, those who live under his reign have a joyful submission to the law of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. There's a joyful submission to his law. And that's what makes the kingdom of God so unique, is that he conquers us to himself. He subdues us to himself. That it becomes our greatest joy to say, I live to serve my Lord and king. I don't want to live for myself. Third, those in the kingdom of God and of Christ receive discipline. Receive discipline when we wander. Hebrews 12, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
It comforts me to know that our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ himself, by the power of the Spirit, keeps us in the way. Uh, he protects us and he preserves us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, We are guarded through faith. So long as we continue in the way of faith, we are guarded, we are protected. Fifth, he rewards diligence and obedience. Those who have been renewed, those who have been cleansed and justified and forgiven, for those who seek him diligently and obey him, he rewards that diligence and obedience. Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for, whatever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Psalm 119, This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. And then uh, finally, and this is not an exhausted list. There's many, many things. But just for today, finally, peace and comfort and joy are given to us. Peace, comfort, and joy are given to those who live under the reign of Christ. This can exist in varying degrees, but when we refresh ourselves through the proclamation of salvation, we refresh ourselves to the realities of Jesus Christ, peace, comfort, and joy are given to us. I'm a, a bit of a softie for the Charlie Brown Christmas special. My favorite part about uh, that, that show, and I don't, probably doesn't even air on television anymore, but uh, my favorite part about that is uh, when Linus says the, the passage from Luke 2. Uh, and the most amazing thing about it is that this is the only time in, in all of the Charlie Brown Peanuts canon, if you will, it's the only time that Linus is seen not holding his blanket, his comfort blanket. He goes out onto stage with it, he brings it out onto stage, and then in the middle of the passage, Luke chapter 2, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And then all of a sudden, both of his hands appear. He's not holding the blanket anymore. Why? Because the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, if you understand it, if you understand his mission, that he came to seek and to save the lost, that he came to make us right with God, that he came to give us fellowship with God, when you understand that and you believe it, that is the greatest comfort. And all other earthly comforts could be taken away. That which is your greatest earthly comfort could be taken away, and yet the comfort of Jesus Christ is enough. Comfort and peace and joy are given to us. Wouldn't it be foolish, brothers and sisters, to not give your allegiance to this king? Otherwise, we are enslaved to serve the devil and sin all of our lives, and the reward is eternal condemnation. Whereas in the gospel of grace, we give our faith, our allegiance, our trust, our love, our devotion to the one who sets us free. And he gives us eternal life. One day earth will receive her king. One day his blessings will flow far as the curse is found. But as we think about these realities of the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, the eternal God becoming man, we realize that that humility, that humble stable in which he was born, gives us a home in this world, gives us a home. G.K. Chesterton says just that. He says, a child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless, 
are you and I at home. The king came humbly, but he reigns gloriously. And he reigns over all things. Does he reign in you? Does he reign in you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. We bless you for sending Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, we pray to you, our Lord, our Savior, our intercessor, our prophet and priest and king. We, we worship you. We humbly fall before you. We, as the, the wise men did, we, we come and, and worship before you. And we acknowledge that we need, we need you. We need your blood to cover us. We need your work and your wounds. We need uh, your intercessory work. And so we pray that you will bring all of these realities to our minds and our hearts this morning, that we may learn to love you more, that we may learn to bring ourselves even more under the government and the reign of you, our reigning king. And we pray that you would be pleased to give us grace and your spirit in a fresh way this morning, that we may live for you. And serve you always. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Son, uh, Son of God, Jesus Christ, for finishing the work. And sending us your Spirit uh, till, till the last day. We thank you that you promise you will always be with us. And that you will never forsake us. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.